You can open up your Bibles. Uh, where we're going to be is 2 Corinthians chapter 6 today. Uh, we're going to be starting at verse 3 here in a few moments. Uh, but uh, happy Mother's Day again to you. Uh, hope that it has been a good morning thus far. It's a dreary day outside, uh, but hopefully uh, within our hearts and uh, within our community, it can be a, a bright day. And I want to say thank you to Lexi. I don't know where she is, um, but thank you for sharing what you uh, shared earlier. Uh, myself and the pastors and leaders in the church have been praying ongoingly for our church family that we would have upon our hearts not just as we come together on Sunday to wait for a pastor to speak or wait for the people on stage to speak but that we would have sensitivity even how the spirit might want to use us to speak to each other ways he might want to encourage uh, the congregation through our words and so we've been praying towards that end and uh, I wanted to thank Lexi publicly for following uh, what she felt the spirit was leading her to share I know that was an encouragement to me even not as a mom uh, to hear and to think about the mother uh, in our church and in, in my life as well. And it is appropriate, I would say, sometimes when we think about Mother's Day, uh, we rightfully want to care for those who this, for whom this day is hard, which I'll talk about in a minute. But I do appreciate and want to call us to give thanks to God as well as we are and continue to do thank God for the good mothers in our life. I've thought a lot about, even with my own kids, the last few days, Proverbs 31, verse 28. It's been talking about this woman of God, and it, it says that her children should rise up and call her blessed. And I, I was trying to encourage my kids to even do that, to not just assume it in their minds and let it go unstated, but to give thanks and to call uh, them uh, blessed if they have been a blessing in their life. And so I would encourage us to pick up phones today and whatnot and call our moms, text them, message them, spend time with them, uh, give thanks to them, not just to God for them, but even give thanks to them uh, for the gift that they are in our life. Uh, but this is a sweet day for most people, I think, uh, but it is a difficult day as we've discussed for some. Uh, there are many mothers, most mothers even, who they're them. Sometimes death, recent deaths especially, can make this day hard. If this is the first Mother's Day that you're without your mom or your grandma, uh, this can be a difficult day. Or if you've had a child pass away uh, within the last year, in recent years, it can be a particularly challenging day. But I think probably the most common reason that Mother's Day can be hard is not necessarily because of infertility or because of death, but maybe this will be a word I can teach some of the younger kids amongst us, but is the most common cause would be estrangement from our mothers, uh, that it's not that they're physically gone, it's not that we're struggling to conceive, but that we have a mother, we have children, and there's a relational strain. Estrangement, if kids, you don't know what that word, it just means like a division or a lack of friendship, a lack of bondedness between people. Maybe it used to be true about them, but it's not anymore. They, there's an abandonment, uh, there's conflict, there's division between people, and that can even get into the core, most core relationships that we have between a mother and her children. And unfortunately, what happens, I think, a lot of times with mothers and children when there is estrangement is sometimes we just learn to live with it. Sometimes we just have had it be part of the, the air we breathe for so long that we just learn to live with it. We just move on. We just try to get on with our lives and function with that estrangement still present, that breach still there. But as we come to 2 Corinthians 6 this morning, we're going to see that this, it's not the first time in this letter we've seen this. It's going to come back to it here. But it, it addresses this experience of estrangement, this, this division that happens. And it's not going to be between a mom and her kids, but it's going to be between the Apostle Paul and this church at Corinth. This division and estrangement that they were experiencing from each other. Uh, and we're going to see that this fracturing of relationship within the body of Christ, within Christian relationships, is not just something that it should ever just be accepted. 
just be, oh, well, that's just how it is. That's just how, how we live. That's just how we relate to each other. But it should be something we're going to see that we should try to prevent and something that we should try to overcome, uh, that we should seek to preserve peace in our relationships with each other in the church. And then when that has been breached, we should work to try to restore it, to try to bring back that fellowship and that sweetness that we once enjoyed. And so I hope that you found 2 Corinthians 6. I'm going to start in verse 3 in just a moment, but I know some of you may not have been with us as we've been going through this letter. Real quickly, what this letter is, it was written by the Apostle Paul to this church in the city of Corinth that he had helped start. Uh, But what had happened as some years had rolled by and he'd been away was that some of those believers there in the church at Corinth, they had started to to believe some other teachers that had come into the church who were trying to discredit Paul, who were trying to diminish him, to try to to cause question about his uh, validity. They were trying to cast doubt upon who he was and the message that he had brought to this church. Uh, Paul jokingly, I think, called them super apostles, like mockingly he called them these super apostles who were trying to undermine him. And Paul had heard about this. He had experienced it even some when he had come to make a visit to them. He had had a painful visit to this church. And there was this estrangement that was slowly starting to happen, at least between some people in that church and the Apostle Paul. And it grieves Paul. Like you, you read 2 Corinthians as he writes this letter. and He's not just okay with that. He's not uh, just rolling with the punches. He is trying everything in him uh, to restore what's broken, to not just let that estrangement stay. He's writing out of an anguish of heart. We're going to see like a bleeding heart almost in this passage today. He's writing with a broken heart with abundant love for these people. But he, he wants them to see how important it is, not just that they be reconciled to God, That's what we saw last week. That is first and foremost in his mind. He wants every person to be reconciled to God. And he's just been saying that in chapter 5. But now, as he gets into what we call chapter 6, it's like he's, he's told them already, be reconciled to God. But now it's like he looks at them with heartfeltness in his voice and looking them directly in the eye and says, not just be reconciled to God, be reconciled to me. He's not content with people just being okay with God and not okay with each other. That there's a union with God and a disunion with each other. He says both must be true. One should flow from the other, right? If we're reconciled to God, we're going to see in this text, we should be reconciled to each other as well. And so I want to read this text for us. It's going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, and then I'm going to go down to verse 13. And I'd encourage you to follow along as we pick up uh, Paul's language in this letter. And one commentator said of this text, he said, Here we hear Paul in his most human self-disclosure. This is written, not just the word of God, but these are also the words of Paul to this church. This broken-hearted man uh, who's, who's grieved by this division. This is what he continues on writing in his letter. Start at verse 3. So Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writes this. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, 
as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. This is the word of God. As we think about uh, living at peace with fellow Christians, being reconciled to fellow Christians, I think we see in this text, we see that there's a proactive work to try to preserve that, to try to keep it, that the relationships that God has given to us that are sweet and, and healthy. So there's this proactive work that we're called to, to preserve it. But then there's also a reactive work. When that's been broken, when there's been a breach of that, when there's been division amongst fellow Christians, there's a reactive work that we're responsible for as well. And so I want to walk back through this text and show you through these words of Paul both of those things and the responsibility we even have as Christians to proactively try to preserve the relationships and the peace that God's given us with fellow Christians and then when that has been breached when that's and I say when because it does happen preserving relationships that God has given to us in the body of Christ and you see this right starting right off the bat in verse three you see that that Paul has had this desire even before he wrote second Corinthians he's had this desire ongoingly to be at peace with this church, uh, to, to enjoy them and for them to enjoy him, for them to be okay with each other and even delight in each other even while they are apart. And you get this hint in verse 3 that he's been proactive in trying to preserve that. He says, we've put no obstacle in anyone's way. He, he's not wanted to do anything in his life and in his ministry to contribute to division, to contribute to distrust, to contribute to a, a brokenness and estrangement between him and this church. And we, I've just note there as we pause right there, I would note that we have a responsibility to do this as well. Not just to wait for problems to blow up and then deal with them, but to proactively say, I want to do everything I can to prevent obstacles between us being at peace with each other. I, I want to do anything and everything I can to preserve it, to, to not cause a breach of relationship between us. In our world that we live in, uh, we experience in all sorts of different ways what, what people call entropy. Uh, that, that things don't just get better naturally. They don't just like grow more healthy and strong. If you just leave things be and don't give attention to them, they get worse. Uh, that They get more disorderly. They get more broken. If we just leave our hearts and don't address them and if we just let relationships go as they will without being proactive and attentive to them, those relationships aren't going to grow in love and thankfulness and sweetness you know this from experience, right? If we don't give attention to relationships, they, they drift towards suspicion, towards frustration, towards uh, confusion or misunderstandings between us and the other person, towards jealousy or anger, things like that. But we must be attentive. Paul has sought to be attentive to his relationship with this church and say, I have tried to put no obstacle between us. If I've been aware of them, I've tried to remove them. And Paul knows what he, what he does in these next verses is, is important because he knows as an apostle especially that one thing that is of utmost importance for him in his unique role was if he's going to preserve relationship with this church, he knows how important it is that he be a man of integrity 
That he be a man who's above board, that he be a man who's honest, that he be a man who lives a life of godliness so he can be trusted by this church. So that he can be uh, believed, so that he can be given the benefit of doubt when that creeps in. And that's what he starts to get at when he says in verse 3, he sa- or excuse me, verse 4, or sorry, yeah, the end of verse 3. He's saying that one of the reasons he tries to put no obstacle in their way is so that no fault may be found with our ministry. You may have noticed, side note, if you've been reading through 2 Corinthians with us, sometimes Paul talks about our or we when it seems like he's really just talking about himself. I think that's what he's doing here. He's saying, essentially, I don't want fault to be found with my ministry. I want to be seen as trustworthy. I want to be seen as a man who can, whose word can be believed. But he knows that his life, the life that he lives, is either going to add credibility to him and contribute to peace and harmony and trust with him, or he knows that the life that he lives can dissolve that, can erode that trust in him. And he's saying, I have tried and tried to live a life of integrity, to live a life of honesty. And he's about to just list a whole bunch of these uh, from verse 4 down through verse 10. That whole chunk is him essentially telling them uh, this commendation of himself. That's what he says in verse 4. Like, I'm commending myself to you. I want you to remember how I've lived in front of you, how, how I've lived my life. I have sought to keep obstacles out of the way between us. And he points to all these things that have been true in his life, like what one commentator called his apostolic identification card. It's like he wants them to know, like, my life has been shown to be trustworthy. I have demonstrated my credibility to you by the way that that you, or by the way that I live. And you may not believe it, but he says, look at my life. Look at how I've operated. And so I want, I want to show you a few of those things. We won't be able to get into, oh, there's, so, there's a huge list here, right? Of all these things he's pointing them to, to this and this and this. Look how I've lived. Look at the virtue that's been true in my life. But I want to mention some of them so we can see this, this commendation that he gives of himself. Him trying to say, I have tried to keep obstacles between us. So if you look, for example, I, w- I would point out first, as he's about to enter into this list in verse 4 of commending himself, that the very first one he uses, it, it seems like it's set apart from the others. He says that it's his great endurance that he wants them to take note of. The way, not just that he has experienced difficulty in his life, not just that bad things have happened to him, but he wants them to see how he has handled those. Because... We all know this. The presence of hardship in somebody's life is not necessarily a sign that they're trustworthy, right? It's not necessarily a sign of virtue in and of itself that someone's life is hard. But when you see how they experience hardship, how they endure hardship, it can give credibility to who they are. It can make you want to lean into them and say, this man, this woman is trustworthy. I've seen them take affliction on and trust God in it. And so he lists that first, I think, on purpose because he's about to say, I've experienced all of these hard things. And he's going to give a whole list of them even later in this letter of just thing upon thing that he has dealt with, that he has faced. But he wants them to see and remember, I've done it with endurance. I've done it with trust in my heart and obedience in my life towards Christ. So first he mentions that this first list, the first three, are kind of this list of general challenges he's faced, that he's endured. He says afflictions, hardships calamities that's not getting real specific yet he's just saying there's these broad categories of really difficult weighty things that I have dealt with that God has brought into my life and I've endured through these things but then he gets more specific as he gets to what we call verse five right he talks about beatings imprisonments and riots 
So that, and that, it's like his mind goes to these hardships that have been imposed upon him by other people. Uh, that as he's gone into these cities, as he sought to bear witness for Jesus, he's been beaten. He's been thrown in prison. Some of these letters that he's written have been written from a jail cell. He, he's had riots that have, have grown up and that have been a threat to his very life because of his preaching of the gospel. And he says, I've endured those things. Not just I've faced them, but I've endured them. I've pressed through them in faith and confidence in Christ. And then as he gets to the next section of his list, it's like his mind goes to some physical sufferings, not just like legal, social ones, but these physical sufferings that he's endured. He, said, he talks about labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. So even his physical body has been racked at times with pain. Hold on my ministry, I haven't just given up because these things are hard, but I have pressed on through it. And you all know it, he's saying. Like, you've seen the way that I've faced these things. As he gets to verse 6, it's like he moves from just these things he's endured to he, maybe what we would call like virtues, like things he's shown character-wise in his life as he's done these things. He talks about, pure, verse 6, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness. He throws the Holy Spirit in this list. That is mysterious a bit to me why he says that, but he's evidencing that, that the Spirit has been with him and he's maybe bearing fruit of the Spirit as he experiences these things. He talks about genuine love next at the end of verse 6. He says in verse 7 that as he's endured these things, he's not stooped to deceit and manipulation, but he's had true speech as he's talked to people. He's not trying to manipulate, and he says he's demonstrated the power of God. That's what he says next in verse 7. He talks about as he's gone through these difficulties, he says that he's done so with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. And we don't know exactly what he's getting at with those, but you could imagine if he's talking about weapons and combat, and if you imagine you have two hands, typically you're using one to, for defense and one for offense, right? So he's saying there's a sense in which I've carried a shield and had to defend myself against accusation and assault from people, but I've also been proactive to fight on behalf of Jesus, to use the sword of the Spirit to, to tell people the truth. And then lastly, uh, as he gets, or not lastly, but he, this is a long list. He, he gets uh, further on to this in verse 8. He's kind of talking about the ups and downs of his ministry. He says, sometimes he's experienced honor, sometimes he's experienced dishonor. Sometimes he's been slandered by other people, other times he's been praised by them. So there's, there's been different experiences where he's been on the highest of highs, and then where he's been assaulted and accused ver verbally by people. And he is still pressed on in his ministry, not abandoned it, he's endured it. And then as he gets to the end, the second half of verse 8 and verse 9 and 10, he, he kind of offers these contrasts of what he, how he's treated, but then what's really true of him in his ministry. He says, I won't mention all these, but he says he's been treated as if he was an imposter, when really he's been speaking the truth. Uh, that he's been viewed as dying because of all the physical ailments that he's had and the sufferings that have come to him, but he really has life within him. That outwardly he's been viewed as sorrowful. He's been a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief like Jesus. But he's saying that's not all that's true of me. I've also rejoiced greatly and I've rejoiced always. He says that he's been viewed as poor, as being this man of poverty who shouldn't be respected, as having nothing 
But he says, while some people view me that way, I've actually made many people rich spiritually. I've not gained them a bunch of money, but I've given them the kingdom of God. I've given them forgiveness of sin through the gospel. I've granted them riches beyond uh, explanation. And I actually, even though I have nothing really to my name on this earth, he says, I possess everything. Right at the end of verse 10. And so he's going to great lengths to kind of remind them to look backwards on what his ministry has been like, the way that he's carried himself, the way that he's handled himself, because he knows that that is important to have credibility with them. Uh, He knows that the way he lives his life is either going to gain him credibility with people or it's going to cost him credibility. That it's either going to make people trust him and prove that he's valid or it's going to make people doubt him and prove that he's invalid as an apostle. And so I was trying to think in this, this first section, we think about trying to preserve relationship and fighting for peace before it goes away. I was trying to think of a few reasons this is important and a few things that we can learn from the Apostle Paul. One thing I, I, is I just want us to think for a moment of why it's so important for us to preserve unity in the body of Christ. To, to have a, 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 not a splintering and a brokenness, but to, to live at peace and harmony with each other in the body of Christ. One reason why I think it was such a big deal to Paul that they would be reconciled, that they would be at peace with each other, is because the peace that we experience as Christians is a huge witness to the onlooking world. That we are telling the world that we believe this good news that can reconcile us to God. The one we have offended, that we have wronged the entirety of our lives in ways we don't even know. We're saying to the world, God's made a way for us to be reconciled to him. This, this breach we could not, we could not fix, this, this division that we could not heal ourselves, God has offered a way of us to be reconciled to him. But if we function then as in splintered groups, as Christians, and as with a lack of unity, we're telling them, but that gospel is not powerful enough for us to be reconciled to each other. You get how that's confusing to people, uh, to to non-believers, how we say, hey, we have this wonderful news of how we can be right with God, but we're going to treat each other like garbage. We're going to be cold to each other. That does not resonate with people, and that should not resonate with people who are unbelievers. We we can't have one and not the other. This was a huge theme of Jesus' teaching. Paul's not just making this up as a priority in his mind of saying, to me, Paul, it's a big deal that we be at peace. It was a big deal to Jesus and still is a big deal to Jesus that his people live at peace with each other, that we seek to be one with each other for the sake of witness. Like if you read the Gospel of John, it's probably most clear. In John 13, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. That's, what he, that's the way he said people will know if you're really the people of Jesus, if you're really the, the Christians that you say that you are, is if you have love for each other. Not just if you believe the right things, although you must, but he says the way they'll know it is if you love each other. If you're willing to forgive, if you're willing to overlook offense, if you're willing to do the hard work of tending to relationships and fighting for unity, that's how the world will know that the gospel you preach is true. But if you bail on friendships, if you bail on churches, if you bail on people when things get hard and when there's strain, that it undermines the validity of the gospel. It's putting an obstacle in people's way to being reconciled to God if we can't even be reconciled to each other. Jesus prayed in John 17, the night before he was to be arrested and crucified, he prayed to the Father that his disciples would be one as he and the Father are one. 
And he's, he, even in his prayer was embedded that if we are one as his people, that it's going to demonstrate the truthfulness of the message we believe. That it's going to be evidence to the world that this gospel is real. That that's something in, it's supernatural has taken place between us and God because now you see something supernatural taking place between us. That we don't just cave to brokenness of relationships like everybody else in this world always has and always will, but that we have the power to reconcile. We have the power to forgive, to, to press through difficulty. But I want to note here before we move on to the, the second point, the other point this morning, I want to point out how important it is for us to live with integrity as part of this, trying to preserve unity with fellow Christians, how vital it is that we live with integrity, not just as a witness to the world, but as a witness even to each other. Uh, to say, look at my life. Like, I have demonstrated faithfulness to Christ. You can trust me. You can, I, I am for you. Like, I, I want you to know that you can believe me, that you can lean on me. It's important that we live a life of faithfulness and integrity so that fellow believers can trust us. Paul is saying that. That's the whole argument of this whole paragraph we read as he's saying, I'm commending myself to you. I want you to see how I've lived my life so that we can be right with each other, so that you can know that I'm trustworthy, you can know that I'm for you, that I'm with you, that you can know that I really believe these things. Look at my life. Paul's making that argument about his own life, and we should be able to do the same thing. None of us in this room are apostles. Right? But we are believers. And we should be able to look at fellow believers in our life and, and say, watch how I live. Like, look at the way that I live. Like, I'm demonstrating that I'm part of us, that I, that I love this same Christ that you love, that I am with you, that I am for you. Look at the way that I live. I was thinking I got the honor of performing a wedding ceremony or co-performing a wedding ceremony uh, for, uh, for uh, a couple of few weeks ago. And I was remembering as I was doing so how much I appreciate the vows that they recite. Uh, when I did my first wedding, I think it was after I started working here uh, about 10 years ago, Pastor Larry gave me his, like, sample wedding and I don't know if he wrote these vows or if he inherited them uh, from someone else but a small part of the vows that that he had couples say and that I have couples say towards each other is this I say we have both of them say I will stay close to my God so that you may trust me at all times I I, I I had not thought about that a ton, honestly, before I was getting ready for this, and that was just like lodged in my brain because I think that's so true about how we function as human beings and how we function as fellow believers is that the closer we stay to the Lord, the simpler it is for people to trust us. If we distance ourselves from God, if we, we move away from Him, if we start living a life that becomes more evidently fractured and disobedient to Christ, it's going to make people wonder about us. It's going to make people have questions about us. It's going to make people wonder if we're really for them or not. But if we demonstrate in our life that, no, I believe this. Like, I am resting my soul upon this. I am doing the hard work of following after Christ. It's going to contribute to people actually receiving us and believing us and being willing to work with us. This is particularly true. I want to note, uh, we, I know we have a few elders among us, but I know we have some aspiring elders and pastors among us as well, some who are even graduating this week. I, I want to note, particularly for us, how important it is for us to live lives of integrity how important it is for us to live lives before people who are watching us to show that the message we believe is true, not just for everyone else, but it's true for me as well. 
That is so vital for us to live lives of godliness, live lives of obedience, live lives of humility. Paul knew that his life was being observed by the people he was leading. And he knew that the way that he lived his life would either gain credibility, humanly speaking, for Jesus or cost credibility. And it's so vital that if we are leading a group of Christians that we seek to demonstrate godliness for the sake of obeying him, but also for the sake of preserving the unity of the people that we're leading, that they can trust me, that they can trust us so important. Hear this not as a call to be perfect, but a call to have integrity, right? We don't have to be perfect to be united, right? We don't have to be perfect to be trustworthy, to be, to be viewed as a trustworthy person that others can relate to, but we do need to be a man or woman of integrity who is seeking to be obedient, who's seeking to be above board, who's seeking to live godliness as best as I know how. And when I sin, I repent of it. Even in our repenting, we're showing our trustworthiness, that these people can relate to me, that we, sh- we can still be at one. And so there's this proactive work that we need to do that revolves a lot around the way we live our lives. The way we live even our private lives matters to preserving the unity of the church. That, that we live in such a way before other people that they can trust us and they live in such a way that we can trust them. That's what Paul's trying to argue there in that first paragraph. But he's heartbroken, isn't he? Because even though he's tried to put no obstacle in their way, even though he's, he's tried to, to prevent division, there still is. There's been this division that grows up. And so he gets into verse 11 through 13 about what do we do? How does he address this church now that division has happened? Now that there is distrust, now that there is disunity, there's this reactive work, this restoring work that he wants to do with this church as well. And sometimes that we need to do with other Christians too. When there's been a a breach of trust, there's been a breach of relationship with fellow Christians. I want to point out from verse 11 through 13 a few things that are important of, of what needs to take place if there's going to be reconciliation between sinners who've been, or between Christians, excuse me, we are sinners, but between Christians who've been estranged from each other, Christians who've had this brokenness in their relationship. The first thing I would point out that is this, and this restorative work, is that if we're to be reconciled with other Christians, it's going to actually take interaction with them and initiative right? It's not just going to magically happen. It's not like things are just going to get resolved by time rolling on and the calendar's moving, right? People say that time heals wounds. I think I get what people are saying with that, but time doesn't repair relationships, right? Like time doesn't, just the passage of time doesn't fix anything. If we're going to be reconciled to people that there's been a breach of trust with and there's division, it takes us actually taking initiative to pursue them. To actually talk to them. That's stating the obvious, right? The fact that we actually have this letter itself is evidence of that. That, that, that Paul didn't just let this division kind of simmer and stew. Like he didn't just let it go, let it slide. He, he probably was tempted at times to, to be silent. To be passive, just say, you know what, there's some churches I am at peace with. I'm just going to go hang out with those people. I'm just going to write nice letters to them. But he loved these people and he knew how important the unity of fellow Christians was. And he's willing to write hard things and write this letter with tears in his eyes. Say, man, we've got to be reconciled. Like we can't just let this keep going. It takes initiative and it takes interaction with people. Could have been easy for Paul to just think, you know, you win some, you lose some. I'm always going to have people who are kind of on my case. Like, I'll just let it be, like, and just ignore it. But he didn't. 
And this should be instructive to us, right? That, that God was the f- division between us and fellow Christians. We shouldn't just wait for them to move to us. Like we should be people who go to them, who seek to speak to them, to address the elephant in the room, to talk to them. And it can be awkward. I don't enjoy doing those things, but I do them because I know it's necessary if we're going to be reconciled with each other. We have a responsibility to take initiative with our brothers and sisters in Christ when there's division. But if we're to be reconciled, it doesn't just take initiative and interaction. It also requires, you see in verse 11, it requires open and honest speech with each other, right? He says in verse 11, we've spoken freely to you. Or some of you, yours may say, our mouths are open to you. It's like he, he, he's speaking honestly. He's being forthright and even blunt at times with these people. He's not mincing words with them. He, if there's to be reconciliation where there's division between fellow Christians, we, have, we can't sugarcoat things. There's ways we should be careful about how we say things, but we need to be honest and truthful. We need to, to be willing to say hard things. And Paul's reminding them that he's taught them, he's affirmed them, he's exhorted them, he's challenged them when they've sinned, he's encouraged them uh, in the giftedness that they've used. He, he has spoken very freely to them. And we need to be willing to do that ourselves. We need to have honest and open speech and dialogue between us and fellow Christians if we're to be reconciled. But another thing we see from this text, from verses 11 through 13, is that if there's going to be reconciliation between us and Christians, fellow Christians, is that it's going to involve the heart. It's going to not just involve saying the right things, having the right arguments, kind of uh, venting or making arguments and cases for ourselves and hashing things out with words, but he's saying our hearts are open to you. Our hearts are wide open to you, he says in verse 11. He, he knows that, that, that it's not just by saying the right words and, and getting the right words on a scroll to them to get sent or papyrus or whatever he was writing on to get sent to them that, well, that'll fix everything. Like he, he knows that it's our hearts are involved. We have to be willing to, to do heart work, uh, to, to share things that are difficult, to listen to things that are difficult from other people. It takes a heart that is wide open, that's oriented and bent towards the other person. If we're to be reconciled with people when there's division, it also requires grace, doesn't it, towards people who've sinned against us. This church had sinned against Paul. They had said things about him. And it seems like things are getting better slowly as you read through this letter. But there's still people who are saying false things about Paul. Who, who are believing wrong things about Paul. And Paul, even in writing this, saying his heart is still open to them. He's showing grace to them, isn't he? Uh, to these people who've mistreated him, who've misrepresented him. He is showing grace towards them. This is important for us at times when, we, when there's, there's different reasons that there's breaches in relationship. But if we have been wronged, if we've been mistreated, if we've been spoken against, if there's to be reconciliation between us, it's going to take us demonstrating grace towards those people, isn't it? It's going to take us showing mercy and forgiveness to people who do not deserve it, who, who really have wronged us. It can be tempting for us, I'm just thinking of mothers and parenting today, it can be tempting even with our own kids. If they have wronged us sometimes, uh, if we've been like a father or a mother to them, or maybe a literal father or mother to them, like Paul was spiritually to this church, to to think and, and respond in anger when they've wronged us and say, after all that I've done for you, 
Like after all that I've done for you, like you treat me this way. You could see Paul being tempted to do something like that. Like I have risked my life to bring the message of the gospel to you. Like I have spent years of my life in the city of Corinth trying to minister to you all and now you're going to treat me like this? Like he, he could have responded that way and we could respond that way when there's been fracture and hurt but instead he leans in with grace and he says, my heart is open to you. Like I, I love you, I am for you and we have to have a posture as well that way when we've been wrong if that's what's contributed to our breach say, I am willing to show grace to you. I am willing to forgive you though you have wronged me. But on the flip side of this, you see that, that Paul says his heart's wide open. He, he's showing grace to them. But sometimes reconciliation, if it's going to happen, it requires repentance as well. Repentance towards people we have wronged. Repentance towards sometimes that's what's keeping us from being reconciled. It isn't just what wrong has been done to me, but I know I've wronged them. And I just don't want to deal with it. Like it's just much more pleasant and easy for me to just sit on my hands and just uh, function with my new friends, with my new family, with my new situation and not go back and address the wrong I have done to them. But Paul says to them, he says, widen your hearts also. Like you are the ones in this situation. He's not being condescending when he calls them children. In verse 13, he's being compassionate, I think. Somebody's saying, like you all are the ones who have done the wrong here. But I'm calling you to repent of that, to, to turn away from that. And things can be good between us again. Things can be reconciled. And sometimes we're not the Paul in the situation where reconciliation is needed, where we're telling other people like they've done wrong. But sometimes we're the Corinthians. Sometimes we're the people who have wronged the other person. Sometimes we're the one who's been rude or who's pushed the other person away. And we need to be confronted. We need to hear the challenge to say, widen your heart. Don't just call other people to widen theirs to you. Widen yours to them. Like show repentance towards them. Show uh, a willingness to apologize to them for what you've done, what you've said, how you've treated them. We need to be willing to do that. That's what Paul is calling this church to do. And it can be so tempting for us to just let bygones be bygones. And even if the Spirit convicts us of something we've done to cause a breach in a relationship, just say, I don't want to deal with that. I do not want to address that. I just want to ignore that person. I just want, I don't want to confront uh, and my past sin. I just want to move on. But when there's a breach between us and fellow Christians, where there's been sin on our part, God calls us to confess it. God calls us to apologize for it, ask for forgiveness for it. Jesus taught this, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he was telling this hypothetical story. He said, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. And first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Like that's the words of Jesus, him calling us to not just think, well, I can keep just worshiping God and ignore that beef that I have with this person. That I can just keep fellowshipping with God and just ignore my broken relationship with fellow Christians. Jesus is saying, deal with it. Like, talk to this person. Address it with them. Go resolve it. Whether it's sin on to them to be reconciled to himself. He's asking them to. He's, he's pleading with them to be reconciled to himself. But a humbling thing for us to remember is that uh, reconciliation requires cooperation between us all. That, that Paul in another letter to the Romans said, Romans twelve eighteen, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He knew that we can't just by saying the right things, doing it in a heartfelt way, lovingly confronting, lovingly repenting, we can't just on our own fix that. 
We're, we're not God. We're not able to just reconcile the other person to ourselves. They must be willing to be reconciled, right? So we learn from how Paul's addressing this. But I just want to, in closing, say this. And, not, and don't hear this in a harsh way. I, I don't sense this as a huge problem within our church. But I do think in general, as Christians, that we face a temptation to be far too comfortable with estrangement from fellow Christians. Like we have grown way too comfortable with that. Of just being at odds with other Christians. Uh, and and we just, it doesn't even bother us sometimes because in our day and age, because Christianity has spread so widely, we have so many churches in our area, we can just go to a different church. We can just join a different life group. We can just uh, sit on a different side of the auditorium. We can just mute somebody on social media, right? We, we can avoid people. We can try to dodge brokenness of relationship and we become way too comfortable with divisions between us as fellow Christians. Far more comfortable than Paul was, far more comfortable than Jesus was with the division that we experience in our life between us and other believers. So I want to ask you today, and some of you may have people that immediately come to mind. Others of you, I'd encourage you to think about this and pray with this pray about this, but I, I would ask each of us, who are you estranged from? Like, what fellow Christian or Christians are there in your life, whether it's presently or it's something from the past, who are people that you are estranged from? That there's division for whatever it is, maybe it's your own mom, maybe it's your children that you're thinking of today, but who are you estranged from? And then I would encourage you to be prayerful today, be thoughtful in the days ahead. And if it's a particularly complicated scenario, seek out advice from other people about how to engage with them, how to talk with them. But I would love for this text to have this effect on us that we are no longer okay with being estranged from fellow Christians. But that we see it as our responsibility and our privilege, not just to believe we're reconciled with God, but that we can be reconciled with each other. Because I think sometimes we don't believe it can happen. I don't even think that's we don't want it to happen, but we don't believe it can happen. We think like that that's, was so hard of a situation that happened so long ago, it cannot happen. We lack confidence that God can actually reconcile us. But I want to challenge that assumption. And I want to do it in the, the spirit of how the Apostle Paul does too. Because he doesn't start with being reconciled to each other. He starts with being reconciled to God. If you want to look at the most impossible reconciliation that there could be, it's not between you and that person you're estranged from. It's between you and God. And God has reconciled you to him. He can reconcile you, reconcile you to that person you thought of when I asked that question. Like he, he, especially if they're a believer. Especially if you both have been reconciled to God. You both have seen that you are recipients of mercy and grace. God can help you to extend that to each other. And it will be hard. It is hard to do. But there are people in this room, as I look around, that I know who have been reconciled to each other. In their marriages, and their families, and their friendships. It has happened, and it can happen again. God can reconcile what has been broken. He sent his son Jesus to suffer in our place. Right? to die on our behalf and be raised so that we could be reconciled to him. And if he has solved that problem, if he has bridged that divide, can he not bridge the divides between us? Amen. I invite you to stand up. We're going to close in prayer and we're going to sing one more song.
and, and thinking of closing songs, there's not a whole lot of songs about reconciliation between fellow Christians. Maybe we should write some more. Maybe Marcos can do that, write a, a song sometime soon about that. Uh, but we are going to sing after we pray a song about how God has redeemed us. And that's the foundation. If we're going to be reconciled to each other, it's going to be to have a fuller, deeper appreciation of how God has reconciled us to himself and then seek to live that out in our relationships with each other. So let's pray, and we'll sing together. Father in heaven, we uh, come to you as people who, many in this room, who are estranged from someone. Estranged from people even within our own family. Maybe estranged from people who are even sitting in this room right now with us. God, we pray that you would forgive us of our complacency that you would forgive us for feeling okay with that. Forgive us of our, our unbelief that you can restore what's been broken. We pray that you would give us grace to try to preserve peace between us as fellow Christians and when it's broken, we pray that you would give us grace to pursue reconciliation and that you would provide that to us. And we are grateful that we don't just have to face that brokenness of human relationship with, with hopelessness and just thinking we're dependent on our own power, our own wisdom, our own ability to persuade, but that we have your Holy Spirit. And we who have been reconciled to you can be reconciled to each other. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.